Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were including in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Over these next few weeks, we're looking at questions that were raised at a cafe service back in the summer. We invited people to bring questions that were on their minds or on their hearts, and we said we wouldn't answer them then but we would make them the basis of a series in in the new year, and we start that tonight with the first of the questions, does God pick and choose people to believe in him? Does he browse the shelves of humanity looking for suitable candidates for eternal life? And if so, what criteria does he use when making his selection? And if there is some basis on which he chooses people, is there any way that we can discern what that might be? Or is such information necessarily hidden from us? And if the divine will in these matters is totally inscrutable to us, does that mean that to our eyes, the basis on which God predestines people would appear to be totally arbitrary? As if our numbers were selected like some divine lottery system. And if it appears arbitrary to us, can we ever really know whether our number has come up or not? It's a big question. Some forms of Calvinism that have a big emphasis on predestination say there can be no basis in our own lives for for assessing whether or not we know that we're a Christian. Traditionally, 
You might think, if I I lead a life of good works, that might be a sign that perhaps God has chosen me. But equally, you might be fooling yourself into thinking that you're a Christian without actually being one and not even knowing that that's the case at all. In the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, Muriel Spark has a particular dig at this kind of predestination. For the character Sandy, who concludes, after reading the Reformation theologian John Calvin, that it was God's pleasure to implant in certain people an erroneous sense of joy and salvation, so that their surprise at the end might be the nastier when they find that they weren't predestined to eternal life, when all along they thought that they would probably be there. It's a twisted and distorted form of Christianity that takes away any sense of assurance that we've just been singing about in that hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Paul in Romans 8 says, talks about, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And if we look at that list of of being predestined and called and justified and glorified, what we need to do is say, actually, you know, I've put my faith in Christ. The Bible says if I put my faith in Christ, that means I have been justified. And you can trace it back. If I've been justified, that means I've been called and that means I've been predestined. And actually looking forwards, that means I've been glorified as well. And so we can have a sense of assurance because of, of where we are. We look back and say, I am a believer because... God must have called me. And if God has called me, God must have predestined me. And if I'm a believer, then God must have destined me for salvation as well. So the issue of election and predestination is one that is fraught with difficulties. I see some of you frowning already. Because it's all very well for me to say, okay, I believe that because my faith is in Christ and therefore I'm justified, therefore I've been called and predestined. What about other people? If God elects some people and not others, and the basis on which he does so is hidden from us, is there any fairness in that? How could it possibly be fair for those who aren't elected, for those who aren't chosen, for those who aren't called, for those who aren't predestined? Raises the question about why did God bother creating all those people if he wasn't going to bother to elect them to eternal life? What's the point? We have our second slide piece. From Paul may compare God to a potter in Romans 9, saying that just as a potter has the right to make pots, some of them for noble purposes and some for common use, so maybe God has the right to make some people and fashion them for glory, while others... Well, can it really be that God makes some people just with the express purpose of either destroying them or punishing them later on for eternity? Are we disposable in God's sight? And logically you can tell that God God makes everybody but only chooses some. What's his purpose for those who aren't chosen then? How does that work? And while we're on the subject, if God predestines some people for salvation, how can it possibly be fair and just if he punishes others for not believing in him? Or if he chooses some for salvation, does that mean he chooses some for damnation? And is it fair to judge them 
for not believing in him if they can only believe in him if he's chosen them in the first place. Surely if he predestined them, they would have been able to believe. So is God himself not guilty of getting angry with people for something that's ultimately his fault rather than theirs? So you can see that the more you look at this, the more questions it raises. And for some people, the whole idea of a God who predestines some people for salvation and others, well, maybe for damnation. That whole idea is so abhorrent, they would rather have nothing to do with God at all. It is just such a thorny and difficult subject. So should we just forget about it? Should we just say, actually, let's leave all that predestination stuff on one side because it's complicated and it's difficult to grasp and it raises more questions than it answers? Wouldn't believing in God be a whole lot simpler if we just did that? In actual fact, I have to say, I haven't preached many sermons on predestination for that precise reason. But if we are going to base our Christian faith on the Bible, and we really need to do that, then predestination does seem to be an integral part of the package. We had that reading from Ephesians chapter 1, which is not loaded, but has significant references to predestination in it. God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. We were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. Paul seems pretty clear here. If you believe, it must be that because the, before the creation of the world, God chose you and predestined you to be one of the elect. There is a sense of privilege in that. The whole of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is one long and convoluted sentence of praise to God, saying how marvellous he is for choosing us to belong to him. It's all about what God has done for us. Because we have been chosen, because we've been predestined, we are holy and blameless in his sight. Because we're predestined, we've been adopted as his sons. He's freely lavished upon us his glorious grace. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus. He has revealed the mystery of his will to us. He has, seated us with the Holy, he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit and thereby guaranteed our ultimate salvation. All that God has done for us in Christ. When we read through that passage and say, well, what's our part then? It's pretty limited, really. We hear the good news. We believe, we hope in Christ. The weight is on what God has done. Our part is pretty minimal. And as Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, even our faith is the gift of God. It's not something we generate ourselves. Salvation is entirely a matter of grace. God's favour to us, which we have done nothing whatsoever to merit. John Calvin, the architect of the Reformation in Geneva, was a firm believer in predestination. And the five points of Calvinism are conveniently summarised under the acronym TULIP. And the five points are total depravity, unmerited election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Those five points can, in no small measure, be derived from Ephesians. Total depravity... That's the understanding that there is no goodness within us that could ever count in our favour when it comes to securing salvation. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were by nature children of wrath. Salvation can only be a matter of divine grace 
not a human worth human work. We look inside, what is there in me that would merit God choosing me? Answer, nothing. Nothing. With that goes unmerited election. means that God chooses us, but there's nothing in us that somehow marks us out as meriting that. It is, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, a matter of the mystery of his will. He saves people not because we deserve it in any way, but solely because it is his good pleasure to do so. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, says God. And that's it. There is nothing else about it. God simply decides, I will have mercy on you because I choose to do so. Then there is limited atonement. That may be harder to justify from Ephesians, but it's a doctrine that Christ only died for the elect. The idea is that the sovereign purpose of God can't be frustrated. If Christ died for your sin, then you must be saved because Christ took your sin upon himself. And if you're not saved, well, that must be then because Christ did not atone for your sin and you're not one of the elect. Particular redemption. Christ only died for those who will ultimately be saved. Those who aren't saved aren't people for whom Christ died. That is, sometimes people say to me, what's the difference between you and the Baptist church next door? Historically, that is one of the differences between the two churches. They come from the particular uh, atonement view of Baptist history. Christ only died for the elect. Whether they still believe that or not these days, I don't know. But that is one of the differences between our church and their church. They would say Christ only died for those who will ultimately be saved. Then we have irresistible grace, which means that if God pulls you, you cannot resist. And again, there's a logic for that in Ephesians, because if salvation is all a matter of divine grace, which is freely given to us, then it's all what God does and not what we do. And if God gives us his grace, it's because he's chosen and predestined us. And if he's chosen and predestined us, that means we can't refuse his gift of grace because you can't argue with God. If God says, you belong to me, you can't opt out, you can't deny it, you can't refuse. One way or another, God says, that's it, you're mine. No argument about the matter. You're mine for eternity. And then the last element of Calvinism is the perseverance of the saints. That too is in Ephesians. God has given us the Holy Spirit as the seal and guarantee of our ultimate inheritance and salvation. Once saved, always saved. And if you lose your faith, that probably means that your faith was never genuine in the first place. So the doctrine of predestination is there in Ephesians chapter 1. Yet let's not lose sight of what this passage is really all about. It is, from beginning to end, an expression of praise to God for his gracious gift of salvation to people who really don't deserve it. It's all about how marvellous, how amazing, how wonderful God is in lavishing his grace upon people who really would be lost without him. And then his commentary on Ephesians, Andrew Lincoln observes that it is, it is significant that the language of election before the foundation of the world occurs here in the context of thanksgiving. It is part of an expression of gratitude for God's inexplicable grace. It's not a logical deduction about the destiny of individuals based on the immutability of God's decrees. And Ephesians 1.4 provokes absolutely no speculation about the negative side of election or reprobation. 
Overwhelmed by the blessing of being chosen in Christ, the writer does not attempt to find explanations, but can only praise the God who is the source of such blessing. In other words, this is the language of praise. Thank you, God, for saving me. I don't deserve it. My, my eternal destiny is rooted in your eternal purposes. And I'm grateful to you for that. As soon as you start to try and work out a systematic theology and say, well, if, yeah, if, if God has saved me, that must be because God has chosen me. What then about other people who haven't been saved? Does that mean God hasn't chosen them? That's where it starts to get complicated and difficult. But consistently in Scripture... The language of predestination is used to make the point that salvation is a matter of God's grace towards us, not a matter of our ability to keep his laws or do his works. Whenever the language of predestination is used in Paul's letters, the point is that salvation is unmerited on our part. It's all about God's grace, nothing to do with me. And that's really important. Because most people when they understand the full extent of God's goodness and grace towards them, feel that I'm utterly undeserving of this. Remember, we read about how God, how God has chosen us to be holy and blameless in his sight. We're grateful for God's sovereign election because in the cold light of day, we know that in ourselves we are anything but blameless. We are far from blameless and anything but holy. So without God's sovereign grace, we would have been lost. We are entirely dependent upon God saying, I want you to belong to me. It's all about his grace. And we're not in a position to look at anybody else and say, well, they're beyond redemption because who knows whether God might not call them. Nothing is impossible for God. We can't look at someone and say, well, they don't deserve God's grace or salvation because the reality is none of us does. We are all in the same boat when it comes to relying on God's grace. So from the bottom of our hearts, Believers can thank God for the way in which he has chosen to deal with us in accordance with his steadfast love and grace. Because if our salvation depended upon ourselves, we wouldn't stand a chance. But the problem starts to crop up when you push beyond, thank you God for choosing me, and start to ask, well, why haven't you chosen that person or those people? And what happens to those whom God hasn't chosen? And if their ultimate fate is is damnation or destruction, how is that fair? Now these are logical questions to ask. And we can't escape or evade them if we start to think about predestination. And in Romans 9.22, Paul talks about God bearing with great patience the object of his wrath, saying that they are vessels prepared for destruction. But he draws back from saying that God creates people just to throw them on the scrap heap and destroy them at the end. He does compare God to a potter and say, you know, what if God is like that? What if some people are prepared and fitted for glory and others are suitable for destruction? What if God is like that? And even the vessels that are suitable for destruction, Paul says that God shows great patience in bearing with them. He doesn't say, well, that's why he made them and so it doesn't matter. No, God shows patience towards them. And the ultimate thrust of his whole argument in Romans 9 to 11 is that God's mercy is entirely a matter of divine sovereignty, so God will have mercy on whom he will. And so if God chooses to save his people Israel at the end because of his covenant with Abraham, and that's what he wants to do, he is at liberty to do that because God is sovereign when it comes to showing mercy. The direction of his argument, even here, is orientated towards predestination and election for salvation, not towards well, God's chosen you for the other place. 
Overall in Scripture, where predestination is mentioned, it is for assurance. It is predestination for salvation, not for damnation. And that accords with the clear message of Scripture that God wants everyone to be saved. But what about those who don't believe then? If God wants everyone to be saved and faith itself is his gift, why doesn't everyone believe? Surely all God needs to do is to open everyone's eyes and ears and hearts and minds and everyone would become a Christian. It would be easy. And yet clearly we don't see that happening in our experience here and now. And it looks as if people do have the capacity to close their eyes against God's light, to ignore his message, to harden their hearts against him. And when they do so, the verdict of Scripture seems to be that God exercises his judgment by reinforcing their hardness of heart, by saying, okay, if that's the way you want it, so be it. You shut your eyes against me, I'm going to glue them shut. You stop your ears against me, I'm going to make you deaf. You harden your heart against me, I'm going to harden it still further. God's judgment is reinforcing our own decision against him. But if we have the capacity to resist God, to say no to God, and God wants everyone to be saved, does that mean that God's will is not absolute? If God wants everyone to come to him and we can say no, does that mean that we can frustrate God's purpose? Paul talks about God working everything out in accordance with his will. But at the end of the day, God's ultimate purpose, must that be fulfilled or can it be frustrated? Perhaps we have four options here. If we can have them up on the board, please. Four options. Number one, will everyone be saved? God wants everyone to be saved, but he might want to argue that ultimately that will be the eventual outcome. God wills everyone to be saved. God is sovereign. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. God is infinitely patient, infinitely loving. Ultimately, everyone will be drawn by the love of God out of death into life and God's ultimate purpose will be realised. There are Christians who believe that. Rob Bell in the States is one. It's the path taken by universalists. God's love will ultimately triumph over our rejection of him and everybody ultimately will be saved. Option two, you might want to say that If not everyone is saved, then that's because God does only will the salvation of the elect. Ultimately, God says, you know, not everyone's going to believe in me. That's fine, because actually my purpose is that only those whom I call will be saved. He doesn't give everyone the capacity to believe. Saving faith is given only to the elect. If people don't believe, then ultimately somehow we have to conclude that that was their destiny. And while we don't understand it at all, it belongs to the inscrutability of God's sovereign will. His ways are beyond our ways. His ultimate purpose is that at the end of time, everything will be right. And when we can't see that how that can be the case if not everybody's saved and how he will get there, we have to trust that God knows what he's doing. We simply can't understand. He knows what he's about and we trust him. Or maybe option three is we, we say, our free will can actually frustrate God's will. God wants me to become a Christian. He wants it with all his heart. He even gave his son to die to bear my sin. But at the end of the day, I can say to him, no, God, I don't want to come to you. I don't want to believe in you. I don't want to be reconciled with you. I will go my own way. And much as God wants us to be saved, at the end of the day, we have 
we have the right, the freedom, the ability to say no. And God's purpose for the salvation of everybody is frustrated by us, by our saying no to God. Or perhaps we could say that it's within his permissive will. You know, God says, okay, within my permissive will, I allow some people to say no to me. And so you can't escape the will of God because God allows us to go our own way. But nothing is ultimately outside of his control. And if we choose this option, what happens to all that language of election and predestination? Well, that still finds a a place within this third viewpoint because you can say that in and of ourselves we are quite incapable of responding to God. Without his gracious intervention we would all be lost. But God sees our hearts. God sees those who would respond to him if they were able to do so. So you can say that God gives people who would believe, if they could, the ability by his grace to put their faith in him. That's one way of holding God's sovereignty and human freedom together. In and of ourselves we're helpless, but God sees we would believe if we could, so he kind of gives us that helping hand to say, well, I know you would if you could, so I'm going to give you the grace to believe. It's still, you know, without me you'd be lost. But there is, there is something there that I'm going to enable on your part. Or maybe, number four, it is just an irreconcilable paradox. Do we have that, number four? Yeah, there we go. We can't understand it, we can't fathom it. Someone once said, it's like, you know, you come up to the door of salvation and it says, whoever will may come. The invitation is there for everybody. And and, and you, you hear the invitation to believe and you say, yes, that's for me. And you go through the door and you look behind you and on the door behind you it says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. How does that work? How does that work? But it seems to. The invitation is open, but those who respond can say, yes, in some mysterious way, I was able to respond because God enabled me and chose me. If we have faith, we can contribute that to God's sovereign election and predestination. And if people don't have faith, what then? Do we simply leave them in God's hands? Well, if they matter to us, if their eternal destiny matters to us, then we'll be praying for them. As Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesians, in Ephesus, that the eyes of their hearts might be open to God's offer of eternal life. And we will actively be looking for ways to share our faith with them. When it comes to the salvation of someone who matters to us, we need to pray as if, as if everything depends on God. And we need to witness as if everything depends on us. It's no good having one without the other. Praying, God, open their eyes. Being a witness yourself. Somehow in the mystery of how God made us, divine sovereignty and human freedom are like two sides of the same coin. And you can never look directly at both sides of the same coin at the same time. You can't see how divine sovereignty and human freedom work together. But they belong together, like two sides of the same coin. It's something for us to puzzle over, but perhaps ultimately we do need to trust that God knows what he's doing and he's able to make it work even if we can't understand it. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, these are really difficult things for us. Thank you for those times when we have that sense of assurance and security. That we just sense the witness of your spirit, that that we... We are precious to you. 
And if we're precious to you, that means that we belong to you. And that means that you, you, you've enabled us to have faith and you, you've chosen us and you've called us. And thank you that the security of our salvation doesn't rest on our ability to hold on or our goodness, but on your sovereign will. Our security is in you. And for those whom we love, who've not made that decision yet to follow you, we want to pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes and their hearts, that your spirit would draw them, and that we would find ways of being good witnesses to them. And for the imponderable question about how your will and purpose is worked out for those who don't believe in you, we pray that you'd give us grace to trust you, the God of all the earth who will do what is right. For those things we can't understand, enable us to come to a place of peace and trust in you. Enable us to live our lives on the basis of what we understand and know and the things that are too hard for us to grasp. Enable us to leave them in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.